Time for Growing Texas Olives, the only podcast made specifically for you, the Texas olive grower. And it's probably, to my knowledge, still the only podcast in the world fully dedicated to just talking how to grow olives. Thanks for being here today. I am your host, Stephen Yonock. Well, it's a beautiful day. It's about the middle of April. I think it's like the 12th or 13th of April of 2022. And it really was a beautiful day. It was low to mid 80s. Uh, it's was a little overcast in the morning and then cleared off nice and sunny now. Uh, it's a bit windy. I, I'm getting kind of tired of all this wind that we've had lately. Uh, but, you know, there's always something to complain about. So I'm not going to complain uh, because... Where I'm at, we did escape some of the severe weather that hit parts of Texas, uh, I believe, last night and this morning. Um, I think there were several confirmed tornadoes that touched down, and I saw some pictures of up to almost six-inch hailstones, hailstones almost six inches across, obviously just devastating to to crops and land and, and property, and so our, our feelings and prayers are with those folks uh, but we did escape that here where I'm at, so I am not going to complain about the wind. Well, let's get on to the episode, and today we're going to talk about weed control in the orchard and talk about controlling weeds. And, and to start the conversation, what is a weed? Well, a weed is any plant. Any plant can be a weed. Uh, a weed is a plant that's out of place. Or a weed is a plant that does not fit the current management goals of the operation. Or I had an extension, uh, I had a professor, he was extension rangeland specialist. He would always say, a plant is, a weed is a plant whose benefit to mankind has yet to be discovered. Although, you know, maybe that was Aldo Leopold. That sounds like an Aldo Leopold quote to me. Um... He may have he may have stole that from Aldo Leopold. And if you haven't read Aldo Leopold, this is just a side personal note. Go run out and get you a copy of a Sand County Almanac. Read that thing front to back a few times. Uh, it's a wonderful read, and that's just a personal plug. And and now that I think about it, that professor, that rangeland specialist, is actually the guy who gave me my first copy of a Sand County Almanac. Hmm. Maybe he did steal that quote from Leopold. Anyways, a weed is a plant that's out of place, a plant that doesn't fit our goals. So it could be any plant. You know, in the yard, Bermuda grass may be a desired plant. In the garden, Bermuda grass is a weed. And so a weed is, is uh, anything that competes with a crop. In agriculture or in horticulture, we consider a weed as anything that competes with the crop for water, for nutrients, maybe even for sunlight. And I don't need to belabor that point. We talked about it in the last episode. And if you didn't listen to the last episode, go back. It's kind of astounding to me. I look at, I can see how many times each episode has been played. And certain ones have a lot of plays. And there's certain ones that have few. You know, that's fine. You can do what you want. But I'm, I'm kind of making this podcast episode by episode kind of building on each other building on the last one. So I would really encourage you to listen to them all in in the order that they're made, uh, but you can do what you want. So I talked about it last time. Remember that 80 gallons of water for one pound of weeds. So it's very obvious why weeds need to be controlled. 
there's been study after study, dozens or maybe even hundreds of studies around the world in all different agricultural crops that prove that good, smart, effective weed control uh, contributes to better growth of the crop, contributes to higher yields, contributes to lower disease and insect problems, contributes to the bottom line of the operation. Good, smart weed control almost always adds to the profitability of an operation. It's been proven time after time. Uh, and, and especially in the case of perennial tree crops, like we're trying to grow here with the olives. Um, I can think of a couple of studies off the top of my head in pecans where, you know, pecans are kind of like olives or, or any of these other perennial tree fruits, where when you plant that orchard, there's a number of years that the tree has to grow, get bigger in size and get more mature before it'll make that first harvestable crop. And study after study shows that when you have no weed control, or even if you're using mowing for weed control, those orchards with no weed control generally take two, three, or four years longer to enter commercial productivity. And again, like I said last time, they just you're just spending money, water, and fertilizing, keeping those trees alive without getting any return on that investment. So we're, you know, we're after a quicker return to to, to make you money, or at least to help you pay off some of that that you put into it and and break even, right? And so for for orchards with commercial intent and profitability in mind, weed control makes sense. Like I said in the last episode, can you grow a tree? Can you grow an orchard? Can you make fruit without weed control? Yeah, probably. In most cases, usually, probably so. It's just how soon will you enter productivity how big will the yields be? What will the quality be? How easy will it be to harvest that orchard if it's full of weeds? So all those things come into play, and that's why we're going to talk about weed control. And when we talk about weeds, people generally picture annual plants, right? Uh, and not necessarily perennial plants, but to me, they're one and the same. Uh, a perennial plant can be just as weedy as an annual plant, and as a refresher, uh, annual plants... Uh, complete their life cycle in, in one season or in one year. So they grow from seed, they germinate, they grow from seed at the beginning of their season. They go through their whole process of growing, maturity, flowering, and, and, and seeding um, all in, in, one, uh, in one year, in w- within one year, within one cycle. Uh, whereas perennial plant lives year after year, and it, and it may reproduce every year, but it also grows year after year. And they may be seasonal, you know, a uh, perennial plant like uh, Bermuda grass in most parts of the state is a seasonal plant. Uh, it's perennial, grows year, year after year, uh, but it tends to go dormant in the winter and it kind of goes away and freezes down to the ground. But then it comes back in the summer or in the spring, comes back from its roots. And so it's a perennial plant. And you've got to understand these things. If you're going to if you're going to be an agriculturalist or a farmer, you have got to understand at least the difference between annual and perennial weeds. And I'll throw another wrench into the system. There are also biennial weeds, which which means kind of what it sounds like, biennial. They have a two-year life cycle. This would be things like uh, the biggest one I can think of is thistles. You know, thistles that come up, uh, generally they come up in the fall, go through the winter, they flower in the spring. They have a two-year life cycle. The first year of their of their life, they generally spend it 
just as a rosette on the ground. Um, you know, they look like uh, just a round circle of leaves laying flat on the ground. And they'll spend the entire season like that. And then at the end of their season, that above ground part kind of dies off. The root and the plant goes dormant. And then the following season, it'll, in the case of thistles, in the following fall, it'll put out that rosette of leaves again on top of the ground, little round circle of leaves on top of the ground. And then it'll also bolt. It'll send up a stalk with, uh, you know, flowers and then it'll set seed. And, and after it sets seed, it's dead. It'll go away. So there's annual, biennial, and perennial plants, and you've got to understand that to to be a good weed control manager. And I'll, I'll go even further to say, if you really want to be good, I mean, you don't have to, but it really helps a lot if you can understand, if you can identify the weeds that are growing in your operation. Because until you can identify them, until you can put a name on it, then it's just another green plant with a yellow flower or whatever it may be. Once you can put a name on it, then once you have that name, you can go to me or the internet or another expert and say, I have this plant with this name and it's giving me troubles. Tell me everything you know about it. What's its life cycle? Is it annual, perennial? Is it native or introduced? How do I kill it? <laughs> Because mostly that's that's what we want to know in weed control. How do I kill it? And you really have to have a name for that plant. And if you can't identify names, you know, thankfully these days everybody, almost everybody has a smartphone. There's free apps. I mean, I didn't, I didn't even download an app on my phone. There's just a Google thing and it's got a little picture of a camera on it. You click that camera button and it says, take a picture of the thing you want identified. And you take a picture of a plant and it says, here's what we think it is. And in my experience, I haven't tried it a whole lot, but I've tried it a few times. In my experience, they're, they're pretty accurate. Uh, they're not perfect, but it may get you a starting point. It may get you to the right family of plants or the right genus of plants, and, and you can go from there and figure out what you have. Uh, so there's all kind of apps. Picture this, Plant ID, Google has one. You can try that. Or if you're not in the app thing, take a picture of it and then send it to me. Please take a picture of it, a good picture. Take multiple good pictures of it from far away, from close up, a leaf, a flower, a seed, multiple parts of the plant, and send it to me. I can't identify the blurry plant that's from 15 feet away as you were driving by on the ATV. You see that little plant under the tree there? Can you tell me what that is? I can't tell you what that is. Not reliably. So take good pictures, send them to me. We'll get them identified. We'll learn what you're up against, and we'll formulate a plan of weed control against that pest. And don't just don't don't just send me a description without a picture. I I can't tell you how many times as a, as an extension agent, uh, people would talk. Hey hey, I got a question for you. There's this plant in my pasture, and it's green and it grows about a foot tall. It's got round leaves on it and it makes yellow flowers in the summer. Well, all right, you just you just described about six hundred types and species of plants that grow in this area. So, you know, it really did no good. So good pictures. Use a plant ID app, take good pictures and send them to me. We'll get it identified. And I can't talk about them all on here because I'm trying to cover all of Texas, from Beaumont to Del Rio, from Westlaco to way up north of Austin. 
uh, there is a wide range of plants that grow in this uh, diverse region from east to west, north to south, and so we just can't cover them all. What you need to know next, it kind of goes back to what we talked about last time in the last episode. And like I said earlier, most people, when we talk about weeds, they're picturing annual plants, plants that grow up from seed every year. Uh, I give you, I'll give you some. Uh, sand burr, or what people call sticker burrs, or sticker grass, whatever. That's an annual plant. Uh, crab grass, that's an annual plant. Um, dove weed, or, or it's also called woolly croton, or it's also called goat weed. Uh, that's an annual plant. You know, it's a kind of silvery looking plant that comes up most parts of Texas in, in summer. That's an annual plant. And the thing about annual plants, I think this applies to nearly all of them, if not all of them, is that annual plants require sunlight to initiate their germination. And, th- and again, this study has been done time after time. It's an old study. They started with lettuce seeds and proved that these seeds of annual plants must have some sort of light signal, and it's usually red light, uh, red wavelength light that stimulates germination. And so if you prevent sunlight from reaching the soil, as we do with mulch, then you generally prevent a lot of weeds from ever germinating. Now, I, I know, I know what you're saying. Well, I used, I used mulch, I used a lot of it, and weeds still came up through there. Well, again, we've got to understand kind of how plants work. It, it's probably what you're seeing come up in there is a perennial plant. Perennial plant seeds generally don't require sunlight to spur their germination. And so they just got to have the right conditions, the right temperature, the right moisture, enough time without being damaged or, or killed. And that perennial plant can start to grow even up through several inches of mulch or under a mulch uh, weed barrier fabric, whatever you're using. Or in the case of certain plants like uh, Bermuda grass, great example, Johnson grass, same thing. Western ragweed, you know, the ragweed that makes you sneeze and stuff, that western ragweed, that one pretty much grows all over the state. Those are perennial plants, but those plants also are rhizomatous. So they spread not only by seeds, but they spread by roots underground, those rhizomes underground. That's what we would call them. They're kind of specialized roots that go away from the mother plant and then pop up a new shoot somewhere else away from the original plant. And so if you've got that kind of a plant around, doesn't matter how much mulch you put down, it may send a root, a rhizome out underneath your mulch, underneath your weed barrier fabric, and poke right up through it. Whether there's been weed control or mulch or fabric there, doesn't care. So we've got to understand these things. Mother Nature is not a, well, I was going to say Mother Nature is not a mystery, and yet it actually is. A lot of it still is to us. but, but a lot of these things that you're seeing that you don't understand, they are well understood. It, it's just that you need a little little help to understand why. And so that's what I'm trying to do here. So that all, all goes back to identifying the plants that you know that you have and that you're dealing with, identifying those pests, those weeds, and, and understanding how they work, because then you can select your methods to how to control them best. And so you've probably heard me me say this, or at least I think I've said it on the podcast before. Uh, you know, I've heard it from from farmers everywhere and every kind of crop, and even from some olive growers in Texas. You know, 
Uh, I sprayed this herbicide and it killed those weeds, but then right after that, more weeds came up. I think that herbicide is just fertilizing the weeds. Again, if you've really got a good understanding, a good grasp on the fundamentals of plant biology, or you've listened to this podcast episode, then you would understand. Okay, you killed the weeds, great. But what you did was made bare soil, and you allowed sunlight to get to that bare soil, and that sunlight stimulated germination of annual weed seeds. So, I, I, I think I've belabored that point long enough. Let's talk about actual weed control practices. And so there's two, two kind of, uh, uh, there's two kind of thoughts to, to weed control, of course. There's, there's traditional or conventional weed control where we generally use a mixture of practices, but generally end up relying on some type of synthetic herbicide. And then there are, uh, the non-herbicide options. Uh, generally we would call these organic options. And really, what we like to what we like to encourage folks to do, what we like to preach in extension, um, is an integrated pest management approach. That means we're not just relying on pesticides, or we're not just relying on a single mode of action to control weeds. We we integrate our management practices. So we, and that that means incorporating uh, mechanical treatments, cultural treatments. Uh, biological treatments, and as a last result, we rely on chemical treatments. And so that's really what we encourage. Um, and to go through examples of some of those mechanical weed control management practices might be, uh, like we talked about in the last episode, using a disc or a cultivator of some kind to, to mechanically kill those weeds or mechan- mechanically control the weeds. Uh, it doesn't even have to be a disc or cultivator. Uh, they make special machines for vineyards and especially for olive orchards uh, that can work up on the tree row. They call them weed badgers, and there's many other names and brands out there where it's got an arm with some rotating tines that kind of till and disturb a shallow layer of soil to, to kill the plants that way, rip them out by the roots, and destroy the, the destroy the weeds that way without hitting your your trees. And so those are options. Those are mechanical weed control options. We talk about cultural control options. Well, that's more things like um, using mulch. That is, a, that is a management practice that is not necessarily mechanical or biological or, or uh, chemical, but it's a cultural management practice. Uh, a good example, an easier example for me is like in, in row crops, in things like corn, cotton, soybeans, milo, they use, they, they really uh, intentionally consider their row spacing and they use that approach as a sort of cultural form of weed control because they understand this whole process about annual weeds and sunlight. Farmers know that. Better dang believe they know that. And so they plan on, okay, once I plant my crop, it's going to be, I don't know what it is, 21 days, uh, 45 days before the crop gets up tall enough to where those rows grow together and the crop plants shade out the soil between the rows. So the farmer knows, okay, if I plant on this spacing with this crop, it's going to be this many days. I need to control weeds up until day 35 because at day 40, the canopy is going to close and there will be no more sunlight between the rows and I shouldn't have to worry about weed control for the rest of the duration of the crop until harvest. That's kind of a form of weed control, uh, cultural weed management. And we can think about the same thing in olive orchards. 
you know, it's it's night and day. And if you come to the come to the program on June third and you validate that I plugged plugged in the last episode, I'll show you pictures of this in areas where the trees are kind of where the trees have grown together. Maybe the rows are planted close. Maybe the trees went unpruned for a while. And they've they've kind of grown together and they're shading the space between the rows, the alleys between the rows where there's heavy shade. There's very little weeds, and the farmer really does no weed control there. And then you go up to a different part of the orchard or a different orchard, or, or maybe it's a new planting, or maybe the trees have been trimmed back there, and there's sunlight getting between those rows of trees and hitting the soil. You have a lot more weed pressure. And so a form of cultural weed management in an olive orchard might be get that tree up to a big size as fast as possible so that it casts shade on the ground underneath itself, thereby controlling weeds on its own, shading the soil beneath its canopy to prevent annual weeds from coming up. That's a, that's a cultural weed management practice in olive orchards. Okay, we've done mechanical, we've done cultural, biological. Uh, I'm not so crazy about biological in this setting. Uh, biological control of weeds would be something like grazing cattle or sheep or goats or even more uh, less common things like releasing certain pests, certain insects that go out and target a specific family of weeds or specific species of weeds that are out there. Those are probably less applicable to, to olive orchards. I'm not really sure that I can recommend uh, running some kind of livestock in an olive orchard. Um, I've seen it done once with sheep in Texas in a high-density orchard uh, where the sheep just had free roam of the orchard, and, and, and they really did a lot of damage to the trunks. They didn't climb the trees like goats. They didn't eat the upper canopy, but they ate as far up into the canopy as the little necks would reach. And then they started gnawing on the trunks. I don't know why, but they're gnawing on the bark. And in a lot of cases, it didn't do a whole lot of damage. But in some cases, it killed the trees. I have pictures of it. Uh, so I can't really recommend that. I did see some pictures from California and some vineyards where they're using this net wire. Uh, it's really more of a, not so much of a wire, but it's like a net uh, string fence that you use, like a temporary fence made out of, you know, twine or some kind of nylon or something, but it's it's in like a four by four or six by six net. And so it's easy to put up and take down. And they, I mean, this is probably impractical for most people in most uh, larger orchards, but they put up these temporary fences down the down the tree row. So the, the sheep or the goats or the small animals or whatever have access to the grass and the weeds between the trees. But that little temporary net fencing keeps them from actually getting to the trees. Um, in this case, it was vines in a vineyard. So maybe that works. That could help. It just sounds like a lot, a lot of work. And then the last, uh, the last thing, the last resort, the last thing we turn to, of course, is, is chemical control. And there we can divide it into two uh, separate categories, one being organic and the other being not organic. And, and, you know, let me just talk for a second. Why do people end up relying so much on chemical weed control management? Well, you think about all the options that I just talked about. What do they sound like? Well, mechanical. That kind of sounds like that might damage the, you know, you run the risk of damaging the tree. You may hit the trunk. You may cut and tear up roots. 
uh, cultural, you know, we've talked about mulch last time. There's a problem with mulch in, in olive orchards, so that's not a good one. Weed barrier fabric, it's expensive. It, it takes certain equipment to put it down. It breaks down over time, becomes ineffective, and then it's blowing all over the place and makes a mess. That's maybe not a great option. Biological, I just talked about. Damaging to the trees. Uh, all the extra effort and money and time and labor that's going into putting up those fences or learning to become a sheep herder or shepherd or sheep farmer, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so all of those things have trade-offs. Yes, they are not chemical inputs, but you may be spending two, three, and four times the amount of money and or time implementing those techniques. And that is the reason, that is at least one of the reasons, one of the main reasons that so many folks end up relying a lot on chemical methods of weed control. And so that's what we're going to talk about lastly, is chemical weed, weed management. And when I say chemical weed management, I'm including the organic, the OMRI certified, USDA organic certified weed control, and they are chemicals. They are still herbicides. They are pesticides. Any product that is meant to kill or repel or uh, control any pest is a pesticide. And when it controls plants, we call that a herbicide. And so let's talk about uh, let's talk about the organic ones first. Um, I have nothing against organic, certified organic uh, production of of any food or agriculture anywhere. Nothing against that. If you can do it, absolutely, that's great. You know, it's a good marketing tool. You generally tend to receive a premium price for your product if you can sell it as organic especially a certified organic. Um, and if you can do that, if that's what you want to do, great, let's do it. I will help you. Nothing against that. And some of the, but some of the main challenges and troubles that I see with organic herbicides are, one, that they're generally not selective, meaning they're broad spectrum in their activity. They're going to kill, kill or injure or damage any plant that they're sprayed on, including the olive tree, potentially. And two, they're often not that effective. <laughs> we, um, we just put in a study here at the, at the A&M Pecan Orchard here in College Station and uh, because we, we've been fielding these questions and these inquiries about, well, well isn't the, all the herbicide you're spraying and all the fertilizer and stuff, isn't that bad for soil health? You know, soil health is getting to be a big buzzword these days. And so... What do we do? We put in a study. Let's find out. And in this study, we've got six treatments. We've got no treatment, no herbicide. And then we have uh, glyphosate herbicide, which is a synthetic chemical herbicide. And then we have an organic herbicide. Um, this particular product has cinnamon oil and clove oil. It's called Weed Zap. It's labeled for weeds. It's supposed to work very well. And then we have a couple of other treatments where we combine those. Uh, or we combine each of those products with a pre-emergent, and we did some other things. But we sprayed, we sprayed this um, this cinnamon oil and clove oil product on these weeds at the highest labeled rate. We mixed it at five percent, and we sprayed it. And we come back two weeks later and a month later. Really, we don't see any any effect, hardly at all. There were some, there was like one species of weeds where it maybe had tender leaves and it kind of burned the edges of the leaves and really it didn't do anything else. So we said, well, I don't know, let's, let's double the rate. 
So we doubled it. We went to 10%. We sprayed it again. And same results. Nothing really happened. Might have burned the edges of some leaves on a certain species. And so that's a problem with a lot of the organic herbicide products is that they're just not always as effective, at least not as compared to the synthetic products that, that most, most farmers end up using. But if you want to use that organic type of, of uh, chemical weed control, like I said, I'm here to help. And so here's, here's my thoughts on how to help you make that more effective or make the most of your, make the most of your investment, make the most out of that application. <clears throat> and this was, was part of the problem in our study. We, we made that first application of that organic herbicide uh, about the 20th of February. Well, when we start to understand plants and their life cycles, the 20th of February and sort of South Central, South Central East, Texas, whatever, the Brazos County, at the end of February, we're kind of in that transition time where all the winter, the cold season species, all the winter weeds, the cool season species are coming uh, to the end of their life cycle. So they're generally reaching maturity. You know, that's why we see wildflowers in the spring or late winter is because they're cool season species that germinated in the fall, grew through the winter, and now they're reaching maturity. They're going to flower and set seed. Well, so the end of February, a lot of the weeds in the field are reaching maturity. And in general, across the board, no matter which kind of weed control practice that you're using, does I don't care if it's mechanical, cultural, biological, or chemical, a mature weed is always, always, always going to be harder to kill than a young seedling weed. And so that was part of our problem in the study is we were spraying mature weeds. They had hardened off. They had thickened that, that waxy layer, what we call a cuticle on their leaves. You know, all plants have this waxy layer. Most plants have this layer of, of kind of wax over their leaves as a protectant. Some plants have even developed uh, what we call trichomes what you would call hairs on a plant and the more hairs on it, the more it can withstand, uh, you know, chemical treatments. And so that was our problem. We, we tried to apply it when the weeds were very mature. And so that right there is my number one advice. If you're going to be using organic type herbicides for weed control in the orchard, it really needs to be, you really got to target young weeds, small weeds, seedlings, in fact, are best. Because a lot of these um, I don't know if I can even say a lot. I want to say almost all of the organic herbicide options that I know of are, they work through contact only. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I know exactly how they work. A lot of them, I think, are just acid. They're, they're acidic. And so they're acids or they have these compounds in them that literally dissolve through that waxy cuticle layer. And then they can dissolve and break through the cell wall. Basically, they end up drying out the plant. And so that's why a young, tender, new seedling plant, it hadn't had time to develop that thick, waxy defect, uh, defensive layer or those, or those trichomes for those hairs for defense. It hasn't developed a lot of those. And you can usually get really good activity even with these organic products. But you've got to really target young, small, tender growing weeds. And almost all herbicides say this too um, for most annual weed species that your best control is when weeds are less than four inches tall, when they're young and tender like that. So that may mean that um, 
You know, you go look out at your orchard right now, and there's weeds growing up everywhere. They're mature. They're tall. I wouldn't. I would not recommend going in with organic herbicide product to that point because you likely not going to have a lot of effect. You've probably got to go in and do something else. Uh, maybe a mechanical weed control option first. Maybe you at least mow it down uh, to to kind of you know once a plant starts to flower and set seed. If it's an annual plant and it's starting to flower and set seed at the end of its life cycle, at the end of its season, a lot of times if you cut it off you know, like with a mower or if you drive over it and smash it down and you break it, a lot of times it won't regrow just because it's at the end of its season like that. So at this time of year, that that may be an option. Go in there, mow it down, and then prepare yourself for when those spring, those summer weeds come out um, to hit those early. And you've got to be got to be watching for them. That means you got to be in the orchard scouting it, looking out. When are these weeds coming? And keeping in your mind, okay, it's warming up. Springtime, that's generally when our summer weeds come out. Okay, I mowed it down. Now I've created the bare soil. Okay, what else do weeds need to germinate? Oh, they need moisture. Okay, it's warm enough. I created the bare soil. Okay, there's rain coming this week. All right, so maybe the week after, I should be really watching closely for those new seedling weeds coming out. That's when I'm going to target my application. And you've got to be thinking about it ahead of time. Because if you're a farmer, you know... That okay, you got a well laid plan. Uh, the weeds we got rain today. Weeds will be germinated in seven to ten days. I'm gonna get out there on the twelfth day and I'm gonna spray. Well, the twelfth day comes around and it's raining, or it's a windstorm, or it's a hailstorm, or whatever. Or you got a wedding to go to and you just can't get to it, and then you lose a day, and then the next day it's raining, and so you see how life gets gets in the way, the weather gets in the way. You finally get out there three days later and you're about to start spraying and the sprayer's broken or the nozzle's clogged and you lose another day. So that, that's farming. That's the, that is the beauty. That is the cream of farming right there is, is dealing with every single one of those hurdles. And, and I'm getting off track here, but, but I, hope you, I hope I make the point about if you really want the best for the orchard, you really got to reach for that level of perfection of planning ahead of time, planning for the unplanned. Uh, and doing the absolute best uh, that you know how. So organic herbicide products really need to be targeted at very small, young seedling weeds. So maybe you go out with a with a disc or a cultivator or a weed badger, or maybe you've got a small orchard, and you can do it by hand. You go out there with a tiller or, or a garden hoe, and you chop the weeds out. <laughs> you may laugh, but there are orchards that I visited where that should be their first method of weed control is by hand with a garden hoe. You got 20 trees. You don't want to use herbicide. Here you go. This is the option. This is the best way. All right. So that's my kind of my main thing with with the organic products is target very small weeds. You know, if you can burn down a small seedling weed, a lot of time the the meristem of the plant, the growing point of the plant is is exposed and above the soil. And kind of as the plant grows and matures, that growing point will sometimes kind of suck back down into the soil as a form of protection. Uh, but if you can get it when all that is exposed, uh, you can really dry out and desiccate that plant until it's completely dead. Uh, otherwise, when it starts to get a little bit more established, it starts to grow, uh, pull those, those growing points and conserve them back into the ground or in some kind of protected structure, then you may often burn the leaves off but not actually kill the plant. 
And so that goes to kind of what I see as the second main weakness of, of organic herbicides is that they are not systemic. As I said, they are generally contact-only products, and so they generally work by, by desiccation. And so if you've got, again, this goes back to knowing and understanding your weeds and identifying your weeds. If you've got a perennial like Bermuda grass, like Johnson grass, like Western ragweed, you can go out there, maybe even when, when they're very young, maybe they're two inches tall and you're like, all right, I'm going to nail these guys with this organic herbicide. You spray it, you come back three days later, they're brown, they look dead, sweet, I nailed them. Come back a week later, they're regrowing. And again, that's that's the weakness. You, you killed off, you desiccated the part that the spray contacted, but it is not systemic. It did not get absorbed by the plant, translocated throughout the plant, and interrupt the plant metabolic practices to kill the entire plant, including the root. And so that is, a, that is a major weakness of organic herbicide products, that they don't do a very good job, usually, of controlling established perennial plants. Uh, that's where you can maybe go in some, with something like a mechanical control or cultural control um, to help, you know, again, integrate management practices against those particular pests. And so probably what, what everybody wants to know now or what, some people are wanting to know at this point is which product is best? Which one works the best? And the answer for me is I don't know. I have not tried them all. I've tried a couple in a couple of different situations with mixed results. I can't tell you which one is best. Uh, and so my best advice in that situation, you're looking for a product, you want to choose the one that has the best potential to work best for you. I hate to say it, but turn to the internet. The internet can have a lot of good information on it. And probably my search words would be something like uh, organic weed control trial extension or organic weed control selection university uh, or organic herbicide trials uh, USDA or something like that. So I include keywords of what I'm looking for. And then I also include one or two keywords of a, of a reputable and uh, unbiased and trustworthy source. Because otherwise, you just search organic herbicide selection, you may get articles from, from the company that makes a certain product. And they're going to say, ours is the best. And we put in this little, this little study and we put ours next to the others. And ours worked the best and ours is the one that you need to buy. And they might be right. But you also have to wonder, well, are they biased to their own product? Did they actually put in a fair study? Uh, and so at least when you go through extension, you go through a university system, you go through USDA, or one of these kind of unbiased and, and, uh, and reputable sources, at least you have a lot better feeling that they're going to be truthful and give you real results that are not biased one way or another. So that's my best advice on, on choosing a product. Okay, I'm getting long-winded here. I'm always, always long-winded more than more than I intend to be. Let's let's talk about the last topic then. Uh, non-organic or syn- synthetic is a term, or conventional maybe a term. I kind of tend to fall towards uh, the term synthetic, synthetic herbicides. Uh, 
And there's lots and lots of folks that, that rely on these products. And for a lot of the reasons that we've already talked about, they can be selective. So you can have products that only kill grasses or products that only kill broadleaf plants. Uh, they often have systemic properties. And so you spray them on the plant, they get absorbed by the plant, they get translocated throughout the plant, and they actually interrupt metabolic practices within the plant to, to kill it internally and not just by desiccating the outside and drying the plant. Uh, so that's the advantage of a lot of these, these synthetic or non-organic herbicide products. And truthfully, they often end up being cheaper. When you do the math of uh, when you actually do the math of the the the, uh, the rate the rate per acre that they're recommending, you pencil that out, and and the synthetic products are often cheaper than the organic products. And so the big one that that probably comes to everybody's mind first is is glyphosate, uh, often known by the trade name Roundup. Of course, there's about a hundred different companies that make a generic glyphosate, the exact same product, just doesn't have the brand name Roundup on it. They all work equally as long as they're all used the same. Uh, glyphosate is a broad spectrum, meaning it kills grasses and broadleaf plants, and it can kill or injure trees. Uh, it's, and it's systemic, so it gets into the plant and is translocated and kills the plant from the inside, including the roots, and it does a, does a really good job on a lot of plants. Unfortunately, uh, you know, it's gotten some bad press lately. There's problems with resistant weeds, weeds that have developed resistance to certain chemicals. And it's not just glyphosate, it's other chemical products too. And let me just put in a side note here. Let me take two minutes and listen to this story. Weed resistance to herbicide is not just a problem of, well, herbicides and chemicals are bad. Let me tell you this story. And I forget where it came from, but it came from one of our other weed, uh, extension weed specialists who's, who's from, I feel bad because I can't remember where he's from, but he's, he's from somewhere, some, some Asian country where they grow a lot of rice. And so he has his experience firsthand. In this country, the story he told, they're growing rice. Everything is done by hand. There's planting rice by hand. They do weed control by hand. They harvest by hand. That's just the way it's done. And one of the main problematic weeds in their rice fields is a plant called barnyard grass. Well, the folks who work in the field have been trained to visually identify the difference between barnyard grass and rice. Because when they're young seedlings, they both look fairly similar, but there's a few differences. And so the, the workers are trained to identify seedling barnyard grass and pull that out by hand, leaving the rice. Well, over time... They've applied selective pressure. They have selected for barnyard grass that now looks like seedling rice plants. And they can't tell them apart. And it has nothing to do with chemicals. And so it's just, it's just evolution. It's just genetics. It's just selection pressure. So I just like to throw in that story always because a lot of folks want to, want to demonize and talk bad about chemicals as a, as a whole when my my position is when they're used correctly, used by the label, used responsibly and respected as tools in our arsenal and not as the crutch that we lean on all the time, but as tools in our arsenal. When we use them like that, they can be safe, they can be effective, they can be efficient, and they can be uh, 
not cheap, but they can contribute to the bottom line. They can make us more profitable, bring us better chance of profitability. So I think there's nothing inherently wrong with with synthetic chemical herbicide applications. What you need to understand, um, and I've talked about this before, I've got a I've got a list, an Excel sheet list of every single chemical, both organic and non-organic, that is labeled for use on olives in the state of Texas. And it doesn't matter if you're using an organic or non-organic product; that product must be labeled for use on the crop that it's in, that you're using it on, and it must be labeled in the state that you're using it on. that you're using it in. And I've got a list that's going to help you get started. It's going to name every single one, at least uh, up to 2020 when I made the list. uh, It's it's accurate and up to date up to that time. I need to go in and and update it maybe. But I've got a list of all those. And it's broken out. And there's some some products that that can only be used for non-bearing trees. Trees that are not expected to produce a crop, that you're not expected to harvest a crop from these trees in one year. So there's certain products that you can only use on non-bearing trees, trees that you will not harvest a crop from within 12 months. And then all the other products, they can be used on bearing trees or non-bearing trees, doesn't matter. Another thing that you need to understand about um, synthetic herbicide options is that there are what we call post-emergent and pre-emergent options. And that kind of depends uh, on how they work. And, and uh, uh, for example, all of the organic herbicide products out there, they are all post-emergent products. They all may be applied, they all should be and must be applied after the plant emerges from the soil. On the flip side, a pre-emergent product is generally applied before weeds emerge from the soil. And a lot of folks say, well, you spray it on the soil and it sterilizes the soil and it kills everything in the soil. And that's not true. Not at all. In fact, in fact, almost all herbicides are broken down naturally by UV radiation and a lot of them are eaten by soil microbes. That's why they don't last forever. Anyways, pre-emergent herbicide products are generally applied to the soil they generally must be incorporated into the soil, either by usually by rainfall or irrigation, or sometimes by mechanical incorporation, you know, light disking or cultivation. That's generally not practiced in orchards, though. Usually we rely on rainfall. So you spray it on the soil, rainfall incorporates it into the soil, but that product is highly attracted to soil particles and organic matter in the soil. So it doesn't generally get into the soil and wash down and get down far into the soil. It's generally going to be bound to soil particles and tied up within the top one to two inches of soil. And and that is the goal, actually. You want it to be tied up in the top one to two inches of soil. Why? That's generally the the space where the majority of weed seeds are going to germinate, the top one to two inches. Very few weeds will germinate below two inches. And so the way these things work is they sit there, adsorb to soil particles. When the weed seed germinates, the first thing that pokes out is the radical. It's a little baby root. And when that little baby root touches that first soil particle that's around him, he picks up some of this chemical. 
And generally, what these chemicals do is, is basically just stop the root from growing. Again, they affect metabolism in the plant. And so they just stop the root from growing. And if the root cannot grow any further, then the, the little seed dies, the little plant dies. And so that's how pre-emergent products work. Uh, you've got to be careful sometimes with those products because they cannot tell a weed root from a tree root. And if they are... If they do happen to come into contact with tree roots, they can damage trees. And there have been cases of this in the past, generally where these products have been misused or not applied to the label. That's generally where we see problems with injury to trees. Uh, And so when you understand how the product works, you understand why when, when when a certain product was applied to a very sandy, gravelly soil, uh, and then was incorporated through flood irrigation. Okay, you got sandy, gravelly soil, so you got big, big soil particles, so not a lot of surface area for them to absor- absorb onto. And then you incorporated them with flood irrigation, so you put on several inches of water across the entire orchard and sunk it all down at one time in one big solution of water. Yeah, you can start to see how maybe that herbicide did get it stayed in the water solution and it went down through that very coarse, porous, sandy, gravelly soil and it made its way to some tree roots and caused some problems. So that all just kind of goes back to what I'm going to end the podcast with is read the label. So keep that in mind. Read the label. Okay, so that's pre-emergent and post-emergent. And and. You know, pre-emergence are maybe not as uh, common and well-known as as something that's post-emergent like glyphosate. Uh, but I think they need to be considered, and I think they should be uh, at least part of the consideration uh, of your, your arsenal, your toolbox of weed control tactics. Because otherwise, we tend to rely too much on these post-emergent products. And too much reliance on a single product can develop resistance, as we talked about. And so, when when we, if we are incorporating the use of a pre-emergent, we can cut down on the use of post-emergent products. We can use a lot less, because it takes a lot less herbicide to kill a little bitty seed versus a mature plant. And generally, these pre-emergent products can last anywhere from... Uh, two to maybe six months. Some people claim up to eight months. I generally see it breaking down faster than that, but two to six months, depending on the product and the soil type and the rate that you applied and how how well it was incorporated, generally two to six months of pretty good weed control. Uh, And so they can really buy you a lot of time. I've talked to a grower, uh, an olive grower in Texas, who had this exact experience. He was relying on a post-emergent synthetic product, a synthetic product, and it was working well, but he had to spray it, or he or she, whoever it was, had to had to apply it like six or seven times a year because every time he'd spray, he'd kill them. And then a rain would come out, and and more more weed seeds would come up, or more weeds would grow, you know. And within a month, month and a half, maybe two months, he had to go spray it again. And so instead of this constant, always like playing whack-a-mole with these post-emergent products, if we can use a pre-emergent apply it to the tree row, we may get control for two months, three months, four months, maybe up to six months. And so that buys us some time. And and this guy tried, this 
Olive Grower tried uh, a couple of different pre-emergent products and, and did report that, yeah, you know, instead of spraying every month, it, it bought me three months, almost four months. And so it bought me some time. There's less labor I had to had to spend money on, less time in the field, and so it's better for the bottom line. All right, I'm just going to touch on a couple of more uh, important points. I mean, there's so much more we could talk about, and this one's going to be a long one too just because there's there's so much to talk about, and I hate leaving you with, with only part of the story. Uh, but a couple of more things. Uh, be aware be aware that there are certain products, both post and pre-emergent synthetic products that um, that are restricted on the age of the trees. So certain products say do not use on trees less than three years old. So be aware that there's those restrictions and, and choose accordingly. And again, all that information is on this Excel sheet that I have. If you don't have it yet, contact me. I'll get you that sheet of, of herbicide products that you can select from. We'll sit down. We'll talk about it. We'll come up with a plan. Two more things, and really there's about a hundred more things I want to tell you, but two more main things. Again, we talked about earlier, what you probably want to know now is which product is best. I don't know. I can't tell you. I have not tried them all. I have experience with a lot of them, and I can tell you what has worked well. Uh, But again, your species of weeds that you're dealing with may be totally different from what I've experienced. And so the products that I use may not be totally effective on those weed species. Uh, Generally, I'll just do this. I'll tell you what what I think the majority of Texas olive growers are using. uh, If they're turning to synthetic chemical weed control tactics. Because I've listened to podcasts before and they're like, we're going to talk about fertilizer for olive trees. And they never mention a single time how much they'd recommend to apply. And I know there's a range and it depends on so many things, but I mean, you got to give us something. So anyways, here's what I think a lot of growers end up doing. They use both pre and post emergent products. When they can, if the conditions are right, they may use glyphosate. Uh, for a systemic product, if they have, especially if they have perennial weeds encroaching on the on the tree row, so perennial Bermuda grass, Johnson grass, ragweed, it could be a number of things. Those products, uh, those kind of perennial plants can't be killed by these contact only, even synthetic contact only uh, herbicides. And so they may go in at least once a year to clean up those perennials with, with something systemic. Most people are using glyphosate. There's a couple others I, I could turn you on to. Uh, it kind of depends, again, what weed species you're up against. Generally, uh, that's done in, in late winter, early spring. And the smartest growers tend to incorporate, tend to mix in with the glyphosate. They tend to mix in a pre-emergent product with it. And there's several that I have experience with, uh, pendimethalin, um, flumioxazin are a couple that I've had more experience with and I've seen growers use them. Um, I want to say treflan and orizalin and surflan are some others, uh, and they all have their pros and cons, but I've seen those used too and those work. And so that's generally what they're doing. That first application in late winter, early spring is a tank mix of a pre and a post generally glyphosate, and generally some other uh, pre-emergent product. And so that kills the weeds that are there, 
And it also lays down that barrier of pre-emergent herbicide. You just need to make sure you apply it uh, so that it gets rainfall. Generally, the, the recommendation is 14 to 21 days. They've got to have rainfall to incorporate them in the ground. And so that's generally what folks are doing. If you don't have a lot of perennial weeds, uh, you may turn to a contact-only synthetic product, something like glufosinate. And there's a few of them out there, but glufosinate is the most common that I see. Um, it's, it's fairly affordable compared to the others, and it's a lot safer compared to um, uh, the other common one is Paraquat. Uh, and Paraquat is a great product. It works really well, but you've got to have a special license to even buy it and apply it, and it, and it comes with uh, significantly more risk. So a lot of folks are using glufosinate. I personally use it at home, um, in the yard. And realize when I'm saying these products, I'm generally saying uh, the active ingredient, like glyphosate, glufosinate. These are not brand names because I, I don't want to sound like I'm giving uh, endorsements for products. I'm talking about ingredients here. And so if you don't have a lot of perennial weed species to deal with, you've just got some annuals coming up, even if they're sort of mid-sized to almost mature, glufosinate really does a very good job. And because they're only annual species, it doesn't matter. We just burn them down with a contact product, and we're not worried about regrowth from, you know, the roots or the underground rhizomes or whatever. So generally, again, a contact like glufosinate and generally mixed with a pre-emergent gets you three to six months of, of residual control. Then they may, um, you know, some growers... Once you get kind of to the middle, to the end of summer, uh, they may do one more shot of something contact like like glufosinate to kind of clean up whatever's starting to come out. And generally, we don't do a lot as we head in towards the harvest time. Uh, I don't know. I don't think the tree is any more sensitive at that time. I just think it's a psychological thing for us. Let's just take it easy on the weed control. Let's get through harvest time. We've got it cleaned up with this contact product. Let's get through harvest then after harvest, we're going to kind of get these trees ready for bed, right? We're, going to, we're tending to, to back off on the water or even shut off the water, kind of help these trees go into dormancy. Let's get one more shot of herbicide, clean up those weeds that are there, lay down a pre-emergent barrier. That should get us through most of winter and, and back into that late winter, early spring time frame where, where the cycle kind of starts over. So there you go. I gave you some, some direct, not not brand names, but chemical ingredient names uh, that, that the majority of people tend to use most of the time. Which one works best? I don't know. Uh, again, do the internet search. And the other thing with a lot of these synthetic products is the companies will often have a sales rep for your area, for your state. Uh, you can look them up online for the for the, for the company on their website. If you can't, again, that's why I'm here. I'm your resource. Come to me. I'll put you in touch with those people. Those sales reps, yeah, they're, they work for the company, but in my experience, they're generally pretty honest, um, and they've done trials with their product across the state in all kind of different crops, and so they have some experience. Oh, yeah, this product really works well on Johnson grass, or no, you know, this product doesn't work well, but this one we've seen work better on Johnson grass. So they can give you more of those specifics when you got a maybe a particularly problematic weed species. Those those company representatives can often give you some really good advice. Uh, and again, get in touch with me. I can put you in touch with them. Okay, last thing. I promise I'm wrapping this up because my timer says an hour already. Uh 
read the label, read the label, and you're going to ask me a question, and my answer is going to be read the label uh, because it's the law. If you do, if you use a, a, a if you use any pesticide product, organic or not, and you use it in a manner that is inconsistent with the labeling, it is a violation of federal law. So that is reason number one to use the product according to the label directions. Number two is the product gives you, I mean, the label gives you just about everything you need to know to use the product effectively and save yourself time, money, and headache. It'll tell you how much to mix, when to apply it, what stage of weeds you need to be applied at, how many days, um, within how many days does it need rainfall to be incorporated, uh, what what safety precautions do you need to take for the employee that's using the product, um, how safe it is, is it around the trees, uh, what are the restrictions, what are the limitations on its uses. It gives you almost everything you ever needed to know. It even, they often even have lists of the species of weeds that they control. <laughs> and those, those lists are sometimes controversial. Sometimes they'll put stuff on there that, yeah, this product really isn't that effective on that species, but yeah, they put it on there. Uh, and oftentimes also those lists are not comprehensive. There are other products not on that list that the product will control. Other weeds on that label that the product will control. So that's that's all I'll say. I'll leave it at that. Read the label, read the label, read the label. I cannot tell you how many times I've gotten calls about herbicide use and somebody asked me a question. I said, well, did you read the label? Well, no, it's a fine print and I don't know where to find Just if you're going to be a farmer, if you're going to use these products, organic or not, get a microscope or a magnifying glass or get your grandkids or something else to read the label front to back all of it, the fine print, everything. It's going to make you a better farmer. You're going to learn. You're going to learn about the product. You're going to learn about chemistry. You're going to save yourself money. You're going to be more effective in your, your weed management. And you may potentially make more money by making more fruit. And that's what we're all about. Okay, it's gone way too long, so we're going to wrap it up there. Again, I could talk on weed control forever. Uh, but this should give you really a lot of the high points uh, to get you those that principle of understanding so, so that you can go out and make your own selection of methods. All right, folks, y'all need anything anytime, give me a holler. I'm here for you. I work for you, and I love doing it. You guys take care of each other out there. You take care of those olive trees. And we'll talk to you again soon when it's time again for Growing Texas Olives. Okay.